welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here with us for this episode, and uh, we are joined today by an old friend. We're going to let him introduce himself in a minute, but I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm finally back there. We're here and uh, uh, enjoying a kind of a slow day. I was in New Orleans uh, this time yesterday and got in late last night. Anyway, enough about me. How about you, Tom? I'm Tom Price, a theologian, Christian ethicist, and philosopher of sorts. I teach all three, write on, and speak about all three. Great. And Glenn? Yeah, and I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor specializing in the Reformation. Uh, I am a senior fellow at the Golson Center for Christian Worldview and a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries. And I've got my own uh, ministry as well called Every Square Inch Ministries. Okay, and we are joined by David Talcott, an old friend of mine. David, I don't want to steal your thunder. Why don't you introduce yourself so that you can let us know the things that you want folks to know about you? Sure, yeah. So uh, I'm David Talcott. I am fellow of philosophy and graduate dean at New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho. Uh, I teach philosophy out here, uh, mostly history of philosophy, but also uh, a range of other things. And um, before this year, I had spent 12 years teaching at the King's College in New York City, and that's where I met uh, Pastor Wiley, and uh, we started forming some East Coast connections, uh, but uh, trying to enjoy the inland Northwest these days. Yeah, you're originally from up that way, right? I mean, was it Spokane that you're originally well, from? Well, yeah, my my, uh, my in-laws spent a lot of time, uh, lived part of their life in Spokane, and are from Western Washington originally. My family's from California, so the... My trip to the East Coast was kind of uh, off, you know, off brand from uh, from our <laughs> original areas. This is a little more like where our family is closer to where they're from originally. Yeah, oh, that's great. Well, you know, we, we brought you on the show today because you have a new book out. Can you can you I show do. the folks out there in podcast land? Okay, yes. so this is a so, book on Plato. Yes, new book on Plato, by, published by PNR Publishing in their Great Thinkers series. Uh, with the foreword by Anthony Esselin, who some of your listeners might know about. Oh, yeah, the Esselin. He's uh, quite the guy and a uh, marvelous guy. And uh, if uh, folks out there uh, aren't familiar with Tony's work, they really ought to look it up. There's a lot of stuff he's written. He writes for Touchstone and Crisis and other places. And, and, and he's a Roman Catholic who has a soft spot in his heart for Reformed people, which is uh, not all that common. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we, we brought you on the show here, David, obviously to talk about the subject of Plato, uh, this book in particular. But I kind of pitched an idea at you, and, and you responded in the affirmative, and that is uh, basically everything you've heard about Plato is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that, you know, particularly in the reform world, when you say the word, the name Plato, immediately people say Gnosticism, uh, you know, uh, demonstrating the fact that they've been influenced by people who maybe haven't read much Plato. But anyway, anyway can, can you kind of give us uh, maybe, uh, uh, you know, sort of a rolling uh, introduction or response to things you've heard people say that are just actually wrong? Uh, regarding sure. Plato, <laughs> and we'll and we'll just kind of riff with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, how much time do we have again? <laughs> right. So, you know, it's. I think it's interesting that that's what he's become known for. Um, um, that that approach is the way people approach him. Um, there's a basis, in fact, to that. There's a reason why they say that. Um, but I, I think the first thing I would just note about that is that's really to pigeonhole Plato and to ignore the bigger picture. Uh, there's a, there's um, a lot that is in Plato other than just a few negative things about the body, <laughs> which is where certain theologians tend to be really uh, hyper, hyper-focused on. And so I, the, the book as a whole tries to look at actually a lot of par- places of harmony between Christianity and uh, and Plato. Uh, he has a lot of the right enemies, a lot of the right enemies. And when we look at what's going on intellectually and culturally in the 21st century, um, many of those enemies are our enemies as well. Right. right. So 
Um, without uh, the, I think before answering your question on like some of the main mythologies out there, I, I would just want to put a, put that out there and to say the things that he's concerned with primarily are um, movements like materialism, which is present in the ancient world, um, relativism, both broader epistemic relativism like hey, nobody can know anything, man. It's just all your opinion, man, um, kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. and hey, also that's epic- just your opinion, man. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, that, that's, there's a very old heritage to that. Um, uh, eth- so broader relativism, but also ethical relativism. Um, he's very concerned with hedonism. Okay, so the idea that pleasure is the only good and that if we pursue pleasure, our lives will, will go well. We'll have a happy life. Um, and so in a number of really significant areas, Plato has the right opponents. And he realizes if you follow out those, those ways of thinking and living, uh, your personal life will fall apart and your community life will fall apart. If you pursue hedonism, relativism, materialism, your lives will fall apart. And so I think at a, at a basic level, it's, it's that kind of reason that early Christians had a more positive view of Plato than... Um, yeah, the, the, the problem for them is how did this guy get so many things right? Correct. They weren't focused on the two or three things that we disagree on. Correct. And there's a longer yeah. list, I know. I'm just having yeah. fun. But yeah. they were like, how is this possible? He must have been Correct. reading Moses or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So I think that's a place to start. And I, ho- I hope the book is kind of an encouragement to Christians yeah. um, that we're not the crazy ones. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're not the crazy ones. Uh, the, the best thinkers from history, when they have thought about things like materialism, relativism, hedonism, uh, they have reached the conclusion that these are dead ends intellectually and practically. And they even articulated the reasons for that in, you know, a long time ago reasons that still hold up decently well uh, under the light of analysis. So hopefully that's a, a bit of an encouragement uh, to folks. Now, there are some myths. I do try to debunk a couple myths, and uh, usually the most salacious ones. I sort of focused on the high-value targets. Um, so what, I, I, there's two of them that come to mind quickly that I think are of interest uh, to a broad group of people. One is the idea that Plato supports homosexuality. Yeah, yeah. This is one that is... Yeah, Greek love, you know, what it's referred to, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you read around at all in Greek history, the the, the pederasty is a real real thing. It was a real social phenomenon. And he talks about it, and he even depicts some of that kind of same-sex romance Mm -hmm. in his dialogues. And so um, people have jumped to the conclusion that he supports it. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I think is actually a complete myth. I think that's a complete misunderstanding of him that he does actually he actually doesn't support this. He doesn't support same sex sex, uh, and is in fact fully against it. And I think you can prove that. You can really demonstrate that. I think from his writings. So that's like one mythology that's completely. So is there a particular there. passage or two that you could point people mm-hmm. to that would be a proof yeah. text? You know, we're, we're Reformed people. We love proof text. <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so there's two, yeah. So like I said, it has a basis. There's a reason people say that, and that's because a lot of the dialogues do depict, you know, really kind of homoerotic experience, like first-person perspective, um, some of that. It's like a work of fiction when you're writing a gay character or something into the right. fiction. Okay. So right. there's, there's that. Um, but obviously just because somebody like writes a fiction story with a gay character, right. Or who talks about this issue a bunch, you know, that doesn't automatically mean he supports it. It just means he felt the need to talk about it a lot for one reason or another, right? Like pastors today might talk a lot, a lot about critical theory. That doesn't mean they support it. It just means they think they need to address it extensively or it's important to you for their audience. And so um, you can look at a lot, a lot of dialogues where he describes that. Now, how does he evaluate it? Okay. And there's two places I would say that readers can look to, to be convinced for themselves that um, he is really actually opposed to following that out and sexually acting on it. So the first place you can look at is the symposium. Okay. And this is the dialogue on love, the dinner party, they give speeches to love. 
Um, it's, it's kind of a fun dialogue, actually, if you get past some of the adult themes in a certain way. Hmm. Um, and when you get to the later part of that dialogue, it's clear. So his friends give speeches at the dinner party in the first part. Uh, and then Socrates, the main character, gives his own speech in the middle of the dialogue. And then Alcibiades crashes the party in one of the more fun moments in any of Plato's dialogues. And Alcibiades comes in and he gives a drunken speech, um, not in praise of love like the other speeches, but instead in praise of Socrates. And what Alcibiades does is describes how he as a young man tried to seduce Socrates and failed. Now, that's not really how the, the pederasty is supposed to work. It's supposed to be the old guy chasing the young guy. That's how it's all supposed to work, you know, because the old guy's trying to get sex from the young guy. That's how it's supposed to be. So if you have a young guy sort of chasing an old guy, that's really weird. And Alcibiades himself was the biggest catch in all of Greece. Um, he was the richest dude, good looking, good at the gym, best family, best degrees everywhere. Um, if you've read Thucydides uh, and and History of the War, uh, you know that Alcibiades is a very significant character, very prominent public individual. So he was a catch, you know, like he was the kind of guy that the best old guys would go for. What happens when he throws himself at Socrates? Socrates turns him down. Socrates says, no. And, you know, Alcibiades does every single possible thing to try to sleep with Socrates. And Socrates turns him down. He's not going to do it. He, that relationship between an older man and younger man does not go to sex for Socrates. And Alcibiades even describes how one night he invited him over late at night and he got him, tried to get him drunk and he wouldn't let him leave. And he made up a little bed for him. And then he climbed in the bed with him. And Socrates did nothing. He says nothing happened between them that night that wouldn't have happened between a father and a son. And Alcibiades is just pissed about this. He's like super <laughs> upset. Okay, so that's one place. Socrates, who's, who's Plato's you know, embodiment of virtue, a good life, when it comes right now to pederasty for him, no, he won't do it. He cares about young men. He cares about getting close to young men because he cares about their souls. And he wants to inculcate virtue in their souls. He's not trying to sexually use them. So yes, he hangs out at gymnasiums. Yes, he goes and talks to the most, he goes finds, finds the most promising young men, the guys who are going to run the city 20 years from now, and says, how do we get their souls to be virtuous at, and start them on that path at 18 and 14 instead of waiting till they're 34 when it's pretty late? Right. <laughs> right. So Socrates famously talked to young guys all the time. So that's one. Read the end of the symposium. The character of Socrates, he rejects it. Now, the other place that's really clear is Plato's Laws. This is his longest dialogue. Um, uh, people aren't that familiar with it because it's long, it rambles, it's hard to read through in a couple sittings, seems to jump topics a lot. But it's basically Republic 2.0. Um, the Republic's his very fam most famous political work, deals with justice. Uh, it was written in the middle of his life. Um, there's testimony from Aristotle that the laws was the dialogue Plato was working on at the end of his life. So this is the last, this is his, this is his final word on politics, the laws. Um, it's much more practical than the Republic, which is very idealistic. And we can, we'll come back to that at some point, I'm sure. So if you look at the laws and you say, what does he do with homosexuality in the laws where he there describes, you know, potential laws for a city uh, recommendations on how to set up practical laws to run a city. Again, more practical than the Republic. What does he recommend for homosexuality? He actually does treat it. And what he says is, you should criminalize it and not allow it. Don't allow any of it. And if you can't quite get away with that, at least say, you can't talk about it if you do it. Maybe we'll let you do it, but you can't talk about it or promote it anywhere. That's a fallback position, right? Which That's a pretty strong uh, statement. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting the reason why. I mean, this just this stuns people. So why does he say that it should be criminalized? Well, he says because it is contrary to nature. Right. And because it sows seed in a place that cannot possibly grow fruit for the next generation. And we want a healthy, 
successful city, right? Which means we can't have that sort of thing going on. So it's contrary to nature. He doesn't permit it. He doesn't permit it at all. Uh, he says, actually, he draws a direct parallel to incest, which is interesting, and says, the way that we have this potent prohibition on incest, we're going to do that exact kind of thing with uh, with same-sex relations. So to me, that's about as definitive as you could get. Like, that's a concrete text to be grappled with. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. There are a number of authorities in antiquity that condemn homosexuality, but uh, they don't get much attention. Yeah. Yeah, it's the it's the main line I would say for the for philosophers. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at Aristotle, the Stoics, and others, um, yeah, Musonius Rufus was famous for his condemnations of it. Yeah, I mean, it leads to it. They see it as an expression of um, of excess, of indulgence, of not having the self control to to restrain your passions and order them to the proper object. Mm-hmm. That, that's okay. universally how it's seen. That's a yeah, marvelous that, thing to maybe see revived in our world today as everyone lionizes the passions with absolutely no critical sort of frame of reference. Yeah. yeah, Tom. Well, I think one of the important things for listeners to get a hold of, and I think you mentioned it earlier and it plays right into this, is the the different vision that Plato had compared to the, the way, say, Immanuel Kant dealt with things. And what I mean is, is Plato was a contributor to the notion that natural goods are are there, right? And they're oriented to, of course, the good. Um, Christians will pick that up with the goodness of created being and its orientations towards, you know, the source of all things for its plenitude and fulfillment. But what happens with Kant, of course, is he begins to see nature as basically determining of ourselves. In other words, a, a certain, certain necessity that we need to almost through our freedom rid ourselves of. So conforming to nature was not a good thing for him. Actually creating the good almost as an object for yourself becomes what's valuable. And I think Christian retrieval of earlier thinkers, their own, and figures like this are so significant in getting ethics back on track because this post-modernity and its radical nihilistic voluntarism are really byproducts of abandonment of this kind of uh, vision. Um, so I figured I'd throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly right. The um, for the last couple hundred years, from Kant forward, we think that ethical goods are are constructed by us, right? Whether Kant sort of naively thinks it's going to be this universal reason that's going to produce this happy, objective, pretty normal ethical system. And by a few generations later, the nihilism has really gone full-blown. If we're going to construct our own goods, they tend not to be that rational or intelligible or that fantastic. Um, And Plato is a great representative of the whole pre-modern tradition, which thinks there there are goods in reality yeah. that we come to apprehend and should conform to, yeah. not ones that we construct. So it's this, this idea of constructing um, the, the world of, of, of ethical truth is so foreign to, to Plato. The exact opposite is what he sees us as doing. Our minds capture and understand this world, this reality that's already there, precedes us. We come to learn about it uh, and, and should conform to it. So that's... That's an important difference that, again, is part of why there's a lot to appreciate here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also struck by the similarity with the other great enemy of Reformed theology, Thomas Aquinas. Um, (laughs) That's sarcasm for those of you who don't know. Um, Because, I mean, he, uh, the structure of Aquinas' argument uh, on this in a lot of ways really seems to me to parallel what, what you're saying from Plato. I, I was aware that Plato wasn't, you know, was, was anti-homosexual. I didn't, I've never read the laws, so I didn't know how he structured the argument. But it it strikes me that uh, the medievals are very much picking up on his thinking on this. I don't know if they actually had the laws, but if they didn't, they're they're certainly paralleling him. Yeah, they didn't have the laws. That was That was gone for a while. But they did have... Augustine and Cicero, and yeah. a lot of it actually translates through, yeah. through through those sources. On the legal stuff, especially through Cicero, um, 
where there's ref- actually like first century references back to Plato tend to be more to his laws than to the Republic with anything political. It's it, it was more practical. It, it looks more like Aristotle's politics, actually. Um, it looks yeah. actually looks like Aristotle cribbed a whole bunch from Plato's laws or they might have been written at the same time. I mean, it's hard to, yeah. you know, yeah. who cribbed from who. I don't know. But they were part of that same intellectual milieu. So yeah. the laws came in with Ficino, I, I, then I would assume? Uh, into uh, Western I, yeah, I believe, yeah, as part of putting the whole corpus together into, in the Renaissance. Um, yeah, yeah, with that addition. I don't know the whole manuscript tradition, but uh, certainly in uh, until the very end of the medieval period, um, they, they wouldn't have had access to it. Well, and two, when we think about, say, uh, Augustine, he refers to the Platonists, not just yeah. strictly to Plato. Uh, so there's a right. whole school. And I think that's another thing that sort of throws people because when that when people speak of Platonism, they think about it as strictly uh, kind of uh, derived from everything Plato said, as opposed to sort of an outlook that was shared by a, a range of people who maybe disagreed on certain points. Yeah, yeah. My book is not uh, Platonism in history or right. anything like that. Right. So I'll, I'll steadfastly refuse to try to figure out all the historical details and. Mm-hmm. Exactly how this church father did or didn't appropriate Plato. You'll have to ask Tom all those <laughs> questions. Well, one um, of the things it, it is a, it is yeah. That's why I'm not going to answer it. But it, it definitely is a big, um, it is a big tent. I think this yeah. is increasingly recognized that um, Platonism is kind of programmatic, and there's there's some different ways to carry it out uh, within the common themes and resonances with each other, and there are definitely different different attempts over history. Yeah, you know, one, of, one of the interesting Go one ahead. of the interesting things on this is that during the uh, during the let's say Roman Empire, uh, Aristotle was considered part of the Platonic school. Right. We tend to draw these sharp distinctions between Aristotle and Plato, but he was recognized as being within the umbrella of Platonism. That's right. Yeah, we tend to look at the two or three places that Plato and Aristotle really differ and say that they're really wildly apart. And in fact, they're mostly on, in the same place. They do have a few significant differences, but there's tons and tons of overlap. Compared to all the other intellectual options at the time, they're, they're clearly part of the same school. Yeah, one of the things that, getting back to Gnosticism just briefly, that I stumbled across here maybe last year, I wish I could remember... Uh, where I read it, uh, but in the second century, I think it was, there were a number of Platonists who recognized uh, Gnosticism or stated that it was an alien sort of Eastern thing and went uh, hard after it to disprove it. Um, so it's not as though it just sort of springs out of Platonism uh, as a natural uh, consequence of certain ideas but was actually seen as alien. But I, I'll have to find it and, and send you a link. Okay. <laughs> nope. Anyway, we can do that. This is not, uh, this is not a journal article. <laughs> this is a conversation. Anyway, this is great stuff. Now, when we think about Republic, you know, obviously there are some things that, that occur in Republic that uh, are kind of startling and, uh, you know, uh, disturbing. Now, one of the ways to think about, uh, you know, Republic is as a blueprint, uh, this is the ideal state. The other way to think about it is as a thought experiment, and I think I tend to think of it more in that way. Um, do you have any thoughts on what we should do with Republic, particularly, you know, some of the more dis- distressing uh, mm-hmm. parts? <laughs> yeah, I think you're right that it is um, not not. He actually says at one point, oh, yeah, this is practical. But, I, you know, methinks he doth protest too much on that point. <laughs> uh, it, it's very clearly idealized uh, in a way that it, no one's really going to imagine you're going to do it that way. And, I, you know, I think when you look at, like, what troubles you about the Republic, it tends to be the whole section on communism in the central part. When he looks at how the, the ruling class lives in communistic fashion, uh, no private property for them, uh, no family relationships for them. The families are gone. They live as one big commune. Um, and, you know, they don't have marriages, so they just sort of arrange sexual pairings uh, mm-hmm. with a kind of eugenicist plan for it. Um, 
that's the most disturbing, I think, part of it. Well, the so, thing about yeah. that, though, you know, is that this is for the elite. This isn't for the right. regular folks who are actually out working and making a living. Yeah. You know, they actually get to own property. It's it's the elite. But I think that's the thing to keep in mind. We're always yeah. concerned with sort of the self-dealing of our elites. Um, yes. And I think this is what was the target. That's, it wasn't. It wasn't as though he thought communism is just sort of an ideal to pursue. It was sort of, let's make sure that our elites aren't self-dealing. That's. I think that's exactly right. I was going to say you should. You, you should ask yourself why would he come up with something like that? What, what's the purpose of that? And mm-hmm. you've hit the nail right on the head, which is given human selfishness. Mm-hmm. The problem is when someone gets political power, instead of using it for the common good, they use it for their personal good or their family good. Yeah. Right. Someone gets elected mayor and suddenly, you know, their brother-in-law gets a job, you know, at the, <laughs> at the health department. You know, huh? How did that work? Was he or just he, the best candidate? He, or his son makes works of art that are just schlock and gets made millions of dollars for them. Yes, yes, indeed, right? Funny how that that's so unrealistic. <laughs> yeah. That would never happen, Plato, never happen. Plato's such an idealist. He has no idea what's going on with human nature. Right? Um, so that's really what he's aiming He's saying, what, what would it actually look like if we could really fully transfer all of that self-love and family love to the good of the whole state, which these guys are responsible to run and to carry out their office. They have to, they have to care about the good of the state. He says, you should, if you could align those interests completely so that the way you care for the family is the way you care for the state. That's what it would look like. This is the only, only real way. So it's utopian. I mean, it's, it's, you know, an overrealized eschatology. It's heaven come too early, but, you know, maybe something more like that as a way to think about it. Like in heaven, right, the social relationships will be reworked in all kinds of different ways. We won't have this problem of selfishness and self-seeking and so forth. Hmm. And we'll have a, a, a kind of proper commitment to the, the common good like we should have. So I think you can see that as like a overrealized eschatology or like ideally we should do this. When you get to the laws, this is another reason the laws is great to look at. Hmm. What happens? Well, the answer is all that stuff goes away. Hmm. He actually mentions, ideally, we would do that. But, you know, realistically, let's keep marriage. Let's just set up different, some different training programs so that we help encourage people to pursue the common, the common good. And let's impose some, we would call them checks and balances now. Let's have some diversified power, put some power in different groups so no one person runs everything. Hmm. Um, Let's make sure we only let the old guys do the really, really important stuff uh, because the young people are impetuous and and lack self-control. So you actually, in the laws, have a much more textured approach to how to organize society, a much more mixed regime kind of understanding like you get in in, uh, Aristotle. Well, and in even our, our own government, the you know the the, the separation of say the, the House of Representatives from the Senate is intended to reflect that insight that we need some right. older guys in the Senate, uh, and you know they're meant to provide the kind of the ballast to kind of keep the long term project going in the right direction. But we also need to be responsive yeah. to sort of the passions of the moment, and that's what that's the right. House is for. Uh, yeah. Now, now, when we get go, going back to Republic, if if we think about some of the more famous sections that are actually really helpful, like Myth of the Cave or the Analogy yeah. of the Line, let's let's get into those. Sure. Yeah, I find the um, uh, the 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 allegory of the cave students love it. It speaks to yeah. them very well. Yeah. Uh, this experience of of feeling like you've really missed the most important things in life and suddenly become aware of them, a kind of conversion experience, either true spiritual conversion or either uh, even other smaller ones. Like, oh, I always hated jazz. And then I mm-hmm. saw the saxophonist playing. Like, we all have that experience. And so that that speaks really well. Um, for him, you know, it's, it's an important allegory for helping us get out of the, the immediate transitory and physical. 
So maybe right, you should so, you should because we have a wide range of listeners who maybe yeah. have no acquaintance with it. Can you tell sure. the can you tell the myth or tell the allegory? Sure. Yeah. So the myth it's a great it's great everyone should read it. It's the middle of the Republic around five hundred or so, um, and it starts with a guy who's stuck down in a cave, and he's chained up. He's a prisoner, uh, and he's staring at the wall of a cave, and he sees shadows on the wall, and they're shadows of birds and people walking by and chariots and you know, Agamemnon, stuff like that. And um, he's there looking at it. And the shadows are being cast by a fire that's up behind him. And his captors are actually holding puppets, marionettes and little images, and they're moving it back and forth in front of the fire. So what he's seeing is actually the shadows of little puppets and marionettes. He's seeing fake, fake reflections of fake things on the wall. And he's got other prisoners down there with him, and they're arguing about the shadows. No, that shadow follows from that shadow. No, this is the next shadow coming next. And they're really into it, right? This is like us on TikTok. Did you see that TikTok video? Right? <laughs> and we're like, oh, no, no. Have you seen this new clothing company? Oh, it's super cool, right? Shadows, fake thing, copies of fake things that we're immersed in, and we think it's the real the real world. And so eventually, but what something happens to the prisoner, and he's freed from the bonds and he's he stands up and he turns around and he sees the fire and he realizes oh these are just shadows and then he goes through a whole process of moving upwards out of the cave and he realizes that's just a fire that's not even a very good source of light that's a really teeny tiny source of light hmm. and these were just puppets and then it actually says we don't know who does this to him i mean who frees him we don't know and then um, he gets dragged up the cave. There's a, the word for dragging. He gets dragged up the stairs, up to the outside, to the sunlight, which is blinding. Right? When you come out of a movie theater, you are just blinded. So bright. And he comes out, and then he eventually gets a little bit of his eyesight back, and he can see the, the reflections in the lake, and then he can eventually see the trees, eventually see the birds and the stars, and then eventually can see the sun itself. And so this is an allegory of going from being immersed in uh, the transitory, the temporal, the changing material world, mm -hmm. and moving upwards through the mind and through the heart to truth that is permanent, unchanging, spiritually discerned with the mm -hmm. eye of the mind rather than the physical eyes, uh, and coming to realize that truth and conforming to it. Very yeah, cool. Yeah, it, it's and it's powerful, particularly you know when he initially uh, attempts to communicate to his fellow prisoners what he sees <laughs> yeah. and yeah. the persecution he experiences. Yeah. So yeah, the rest of the story is the political part of it is, uh, you know, he comes if he comes back down, if he were to come back down and tell his prisoners, the other prisoners, hey, you guys, this is all fake stuff. Like. <laughs> That's just that's just like a cardboard cutout being you know with a flashlight behind it like that's not really very serious. Um, they're of course going to be irate because you know TikTok videos are where it's at and anyone who thinks that's dumb you know forget right. them. Right. Uh, so yeah, uh, so there's persecution there, and if he were to really get in their faces, right, they'd eventually boot him out of their prisoner club. Uh, right. And you know the, the analog club, to that right. is, you know, <laughs> right. the true follower of virtue getting booted out by the population because right. everyone wants the bread and circuses. No one wants virtue yeah. and truth. Right. Yeah. You know, Diana Pasolka in uh, her book, most recent book, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, talks about the allegory of the cave, yeah. and her argument is, in some ways, we're putting the emphasis on the wrong thing. One of the questions we should be asking is, who are the jailers? Oh, right. Yeah, right. That's um, a good, good thought. And, yeah, and, and so where she goes with that is, you know, for Plato, the jailers are, are uh, the Athenians and, you know, the elites in, in Athens and the guy who escapes from the cave is Socrates. <laughs> Yeah, it's you know, interesting. Although, and, although I and, and you know, and then the the application, if you take it in that direction, is to ask who is it that is controlling? Well, in our world, media controlling information, 
all of those kinds of things to keep people ignorant of what's really going on. Yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting insight. Um, I think, though, that the analogy of the line uh, is relevant here uh, because it relates directly to, you know, the epistemological matters. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to point out to some of our listeners that there are remarkable resonances in the New Testament with the myth of the cave. Or the, so, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. Let me read it for you. <laughs> Uh, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are, are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now let's take a church father who knows that, and then he reads the myth of the cave for the first time. What do you think he's going to do? He's going to say, what in the world? Plato is onto something that Paul tells us about. That's the discovery of the early church uh, fathers, or sort of the maybe the the problem or the challenge that they faced. Here's something that um, you know predates um, the Christian uh, faith by hundreds of years, uh, but at the same time, there's a remarkable similarity, a resonance between these two things. Uh, how do we explain this? So anyway, yeah, I'm not asking well, you to explain it. David, the, you might have some thoughts. Sure. Yeah. It's, <laughs> One of the cool things about Plato, especially this, like the, this part of the Republic, is he does so many things at once. So he mixes things together that we often like to separate. So the allegory of the cave, is it about a spiritual journey? Yes. Is it about an intellectual journey? Yes. Is it about a political commentary? Yes. Uh, is it about a uh, the internal ethical transformation we have to go through? Yeah, right. He actually has a lot of things that yeah. he's doing at once. So the epistemic stuff is also tied into the ethics stuff for him, yeah. right? Because you only come to understand goodness by grasping its eternal nature, its unchanging nature. Uh, yeah. You can see instances in the world, right? Particular cases of things that are good or bad. But to come to understand what it is, you have to grasp something that is more permanent than any particular good thing, which they come and go over time. So you have to, that's, that, that's a big epistemic thing to say that the goodness itself is not just a physical thing it's 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 eternal and and spiritual and intellectual um so he's doing that at the same time as he's doing obvious political commentary like yeah. socrates getting persecuted or any other yeah. politician who's trying to do the right thing being persecuted well, uh, he manages to do those together and i i do think it's fair to for to to look at how plato is highly critical of the political elites of his time. He really thinks they are failures. Um, he thinks they are corrupt, they're self-serving, and their own personal corruptions have poured out into corrupt mm -hmm. management, corrupt leadership, so that the whole city is now corrupt as well. Athens was drunk on power at the end of the 400s, and they exhausted themselves, they destroyed their own empire, um, when when you have greed and overreach as your principle, there's no limit to it. You overextend, and you collapse on yourself. That's that's his argument. And there's an irony to this, of course, because uh, he's you know dismissed as a dead white male who uh, is you know simply trying to prop up a political order. I'm talking about you know the postmodern shtick. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the hermeneutic of suspicion, every, every truth claim is actually a power grab, you know, all that yep. kind of stuff. But what you just described is actually the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that people often miss looking at that is they're coming at it from, from uh, already, you know, an angle that is already so far removed from what's going on with those classic thinkers that they, they yeah. just have them wrong altogether. I mean, you mentioned a, a minute ago how the, the epistemological issue, but look how wrapped up it is with the metaphysical. I mean, his metaphysical vision and epistemological are, are connected where we tend to separate. We don't have access to the metaphysical and the epistemological therefore has to be doing something else, constructing it, you know, projecting, um, you know, something along those those lines. Um, I That's still right. use. I still use this in my intro to philosophy class. I just I started uh, teaching uh, this term again, and and I just take it and apply it 
you know, because it can be applied in so many ways. But one of the first things I do is talk about what philosophy is up to. And I start to go around all the things in the, the, the room that just by convention have become wholly normative ways of relating to those things to where they don't even pay attention to th- everything happening around them. And by the end of the class, I've made everything so strange that they walk out you can see it on their face. They don't know what hit them. And all, all I'm doing is putting into, into practice the same thing that Plato taught us to do. So it's still a very effective way of getting people to, to start to look at the profundity of what we take as ordinary and wholly normative right. and start to realize that uh, once you start unpacking the metaphysical and, and the rest – it gets very uncomfortably strange and you have to start thinking differently about these things. Yeah, he thinks one of his, you know, real commitments is that as you start doing that, you move away from the material yes. and to something deeper and yeah. more fundamental. So you're like, well, this is just, this is all just matter in motion. Yeah. And then you start digging at it and you're like, well, actually, there's all kinds of stuff here that doesn't look like just matter in motion. That's yeah. really these underlying uh, eternal truths and realities Um, even if you take something today like an electron right um, all the electrons react in the uh, act in the same way they have the same properties this they have the same features and there's something that is a a nature of an electron of what it is to be an electron yeah and given that right which is more than just any particular electron everything seems to operate in a law-like fashion with it this electron essence yeah. Um, is operative beyond the mere the mere physical because the physical comes and goes and the electrons yeah. they somehow come back into being, <laughs> which um, which actually inverts sort of the common sense approach. Like if we were to yes. say uh, Plato was a realist, uh, you know, with a capital R, people would say, "What do you mean? He's he, he's he's just kind of like uh, dealing with ideas. You know, he's not really right. you know, reality is the physical world." Whereas right. what you just described is actually, no, uh, the, the physical world is the world of things passing away. This is what Paul is saying, that the, yep. the, the physical world is, is the temporal world. Yeah, yeah, everything here changes, um, and there must be something unchanging that's behind it, to right. order it, to structure it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've been reading a little bit lately about some popular-level discussions of quantum mechanics, <laughs> And it turns out, now, I'll, what I will tell you is that anybody who talks to you about quantum mechanics who isn't a specialist in it in physics doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> because I would never attempt it. <laughs> seriously weird. But apparently, they've, they've determined that at the level of, uh, you know, photons and things like that, that what they are are simply... Well, the best analogy we can use is they're only probabilities until you take a look at them. And once you take a look at them, they resolve into whatever it is they are. Um, and this even applies to things like, like uh, tracking photons coming in from a star, you know, that has been traveling for years. And when it arrives, it's indeterminate what it is until you look at it. And this has to do with beam splitting and a whole bunch of other things like that. So what this says is that observation or intelligence or consciousness is fundamental to reality on a quantum level, which which has got to fit in here with Plato somehow. It uh, yeah, he he thinks consciousness is behind creation for one. So he yeah. thinks. Um, if you ask what kinds of things can move themselves, it's living things. And so you have to start with something alive to, to move the other stuff. So he definitely thinks consciousness is actually behind everything. The, that's an interesting take on the quantum mechanics stuff, that consciousness, you have to build that into your physical, th- even your physical theory or you know whatever theory you're going to have since it's going to determine um, some of the outcomes. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, realistically, consciousness is, ineliminable because we all experience it directly like any any view which says there's no consciousness you have immediate refutation of that right so any, anyway it's always <laughs> these are fun but the, the quantum mechanics stuff is interesting I, I would add to that too you know the more that you dig we have a really naive conception of matter right really naive we think of matter as like 
little tiny physical bowling balls that are atoms and they knock into each other and they push each other. And that's what, you know, early modern materialists thought. That's what ancient materialists thought. And that whole idea of matter is just completely exploded at this point. It just does not fit with what even standard physics says. Um, you know, what is, what is a force? Uh, is a force material? Um, it's certainly not material the way anybody would have understood matter. And yet it's an inescapable part of our physics. Um, what, what is energy? Uh, what, you know, that's, that's how is mat matter and energy are convertible now? Um, what's a field? Uh, th these things don't seem to have normal, you know, material properties. And so as you dig at material stuff and try to explain it, you get these things that don't look like normal material anymore. And even that, I think, is a huge vindication of Plato. You cannot explain what's going on in the world with just little tiny physical bowling balls knocking into each other. Yeah. It doesn't work. Well, this brings us to something that maybe could be a way for people to relate. Physicists are often, you know, savants when it comes to math, right? It's part of the it's the language of their discipline. And uh, when it comes to math, uh, I've known, you know, mathematicians, PhDs, and I've asked them whenever I've come across them, are, you know, are, are you a Platonist? And to a man, they say, yeah. <laughs> and it, and, yeah. and it's, it's interesting that Plato made ge geometry one of the, uh, you know, sort of like entrance requirements uh, to the academy. Um, so if, if it's hard for people to relate to sort of why, say, unseen things should be primary, uh, math is a good place to go and Plato goes there. Is there anything you want to say about that, David? You know, most people don't like math, so I don't know why you're bringing up math. I mean, that just brings up bad <laughs> You're really trying memory. to turn people off. <laughs> I, I, don't know, yeah, I don't know what that move was, but um, I, I actually, it, you're, you're right about how important math is for Plato. It's very important, um, yeah. and I usually do a lot of kind of apologetics work with students to try to convince them that they should think it's interesting, too. I mean, he thinks math is really, he, he has extensive discussions a lot of places, one part of it is simply the practice of math forces you to think about immaterial things, non-material things, yeah. numbers, shapes. Yeah. Um, you start by drawing a little triangle on the whiteboard, but you end up proving something about all triangles everywhere. Yeah. And not just that one triangle. So you're proving something about what it is to be a triangle. It has three sides and three angles and two-dimensional enclosed object. Um, and so you, when you prove stuff mathematically and you, and, you, and you find mathematical truth, you're finding the kind of truth that he thinks is really that, that, real, that, that really structuring, ordering, basic truth. Um, the other thing about um, geometry and arithmetic is uh, all, physical, all the physical objects in the world can be described mathematically in that way. Hmm. Right? Everything you perceive has some shape to it and therefore yeah. some kind of geometry that you start with. Everything that is, is countable. Yeah. Right? If it is, it's one. Yeah. And if there's more than one, then you can count whatever it is. And whether you're talking about sticks or trees or computers or yeah. ideas, if it is, it can be counted. And so um, mathematics is like the very first language. Um, it's the very mo most basic language of reality. Yeah. Um, everything is countable. This is why we want engineers also to be good with math. Um, you know, physicists, of course, are trying to describe the largest structure, the cosmos. But when we want a bridge built, do we want somebody who flunked uh, math uh, designing the bridge? Or do we want somebody who knows how to work with, uh, you know, uh, mathematics so as to construct the bridge, understanding tolerances and the various things. I remember there was a, a bridge down in Florida that collapsed that was the product of a kind of postmodern school of architecture, which uh, was based on the conviction that um, mathematics is just convention. <laughs> you yeah, just, you I, just, I'd like to point out, Chris, that that's being taught in your state right now. <laughs> that the idea that there is a correct answer to math problems is an example of white supremacy. 
And it suggests that there is, in fact, objectivity in the world, which, of course, we know there isn't. Right, right. Yeah, yeah and, and these people, you know, the proof is always uh, when the rubber meets the road. It's like the public school teacher that doesn't send their kids to public school. You know, yeah. these people want the benefits of objectivity, but they also want to hold on to the political sort of advantages that their crazy theories provide them with. Yeah, there's there's an interesting question in, uh, I suppose you'd call it the philosophy of mathematics, whether mathematics is invented or discovered. Mm -hmm. You know, did Newton invent calculus or did he discover it? Or Leibniz, whichever one you prefer. You have any thoughts on that, David? Uh, I would echo what Glenn said. It's a live uh, live debate. Um, I, I have found in my own experience, like you said, Chris, that uh, sort of the, the people who do math all day, every day, tend to think it's real. Yeah. And they're really uh, talking about reality. And, and so that from, from their perspective, they're discovering it. Yeah. Yeah. And they're well, discovering I mean, I, a proof. I think you also see, I mean, here, I'll take it with another thinker influenced by Plato is Augustine with uh, picking up on notions how significant mathematics were for Augustine in his early works. And one of the things Augustine connects it with, and, and I think it's a lot of times a misunderstanding of Plato, because they often think of his negative comments on art tend to be that Plato was, had a, you know, a kind of anti, you know, was basically aesthetics was, was a no-no when it was actually the flip side. But one of the things that Augustine catches on very early, and it's very significant for the church, is the relationship between mathematics, higher reality, beauty, and music. This is one of the things, some of Augustine's earliest writings are on music. And having studied music in the past, one of the things you study in theory is the way in which harmony works and sound and rhythm and, and how even in the most primitive forms, but especially the most developed, form, you know, developed forms, and as you mentioned earlier, jazz, I mean, jazz will not work unless there is a radical connectedness to sound reality and, and mathematics. And the way in which these things work, it, it, it's phenomenal. You could spend a lifetime on the philosophy of it. So when you have sound, and you know, something that it, sound is more than just some kind of mechanical and material action, but it is aesthetic and it does something to the soul, you're starting to see that thick web of, of reality where these things are obviously connected. And I think music and uh, Tolkien, of course, how does he begin his, his, uh, his creation story, but with, with a song, right, that goes out there. So, I mean, you really, I think you can really see that there may be dimensions to which we are part of God's providence in contributing to mathematical puzzles and the like, helping us unpack it. But there is a reality there that we're a part of and that is there that we're obviously not constructing or just merely fabricating. Um, so I'd like to get into participating in, and there's Plato. Uh, I'd like to <laughs> so, get into a, a, one of the more controversial dimensions of Platon's, Platonism's uh, epistemology, and that's amnesis, uh, doctrine of recollection, because it actually plays into it in Mino. You know what what Plato does. Uh, you know he has Socrates. Uh, examine a slave boy and he gives him a, a puzzle a mathematical puzzle and with a series of leading questions the slave the uneducated slave boy correctly uh you know solves the puzzle or you know yeah. sort of, so uh and then what what socrates says is that at that point see he already knew <laughs> he already knew i yeah. just was drawing it out of him but he already knew it yeah so do you want to play out with that a little bit? Because I think that this is something that actually I think is a, as a, a, a way or correspondence to the Christian conviction of the conscience. Uh, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, so Plato recognizes that there's a puzzle here about how we come to know these unchanging truths, truths that are permanent uh, and, and enduring, um, because it's not clear how we could know them just through the senses because everything we see through our senses is changeable and passes away. It's constantly moving. It's constantly shifting. Um, and so, you know, how could you come to know, you know, something about triangles 
just from seeing a few individual triangles, don't you have to see every triangle? How do you know it holds for every triangle? You've only seen a few triangles. Mm -hmm. But you're like, no, I can see the principle of it. I can see mm -hmm. that given what a triangle is, that this is what it's going to be like. And so how do we have knowledge of those things? How do we get knowledge of those things? And it can't be just from a, from a sense perception. And so his argument, and, and he has a couple different arguments along these lines, but his argument is actually that these, these basic uh, definitions, basic concepts, ideas, the forms, are already embedded in our souls even before we get into the world. So that as we come and we experience triangles, um, that is part of a process whereby, whereby we recollect or remember what triangleness is. And it's true for beauty and equality and justice and, and you know, ugliness. We see some ugly things and it, it, it recalls to us this idea of ugliness. <laughs> um, so um, that's, you know, Plato's solution to the problem of how we could have knowledge of these things. Uh, a lot of people have tended to not like that in history. <laughs> and they don't like the idea that our souls pre-existed our bodies and God implanted all these ideas in them and then, and then put them down into bodies. That's Plato's full official story. But um, if we don't like that answer, we need some other answer about how we come to know these things. And, you know, the idea of innate ideas that God creates us with um, some ideas already built into human nature or maybe, you know, immediately activated upon certain experiences or being talked to by our parents and learning language and so forth. Um, that obviously has much more pull, uh, even right down to the, the kind of way that our mind seems structured just to have basic grammar um, yeah. and so forth. Uh, seems like some of the basic concepts are are really baked into human nature. So Plato's a, a kind of a first, you know, pass at that, and I I think he deserves credit for calling attention to those issues, even if we don't like his full pagan answer to all of the all the pieces. Sure. It's an easy, maybe not easy, but it's it's a move that I've made, and that is uh, the fact that we're made in the image of God, yeah, and that we're participating in His creation uh, as His images. Uh, yeah. means that we uh, have a kind of uh, basis for innate ideas uh, because um, these are realities that uh, are reflected in our own minds but exist uh, eternally in the mind of God, which is you know, the, the Augustinian answer. Yeah. yeah. When we think of conscience, it means, you know, knowing with, you know, that's, this, you know, break down the word, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Well, it's, I, I think one of the things I, I was reading recently, uh, discussions about the very fact you mentioned grammar and connected to that is the very, you know, when they're unpacking the story in Genesis and the capacity to name things is, isn't arbitrary. It's bound up with th the fact that you need reality there that is ordered and, and, you know, stamped, if you will, in order to make sense of any of those things like kinds and categorizing and everything else. So, these things are intertwined. Reality, our connectedness to it, and us not just merely being a blank slate, if you will, but there being something actualized in that process that, that makes it a valid way of describing it to the point that if we end up later down the road violating our own contrib contribution to that grammar oriented to reality the right way, we're sinning in some sense. I mean, we're doing it now with you know, the, the games going on with pronouns. Right. I mean, we're actually coming up against something that was put in place for good reason. Yeah, the the old old philosophers loved distinctions. They loved to distinguish things and to understand their differences. And that original intellectual act of Adam to name the animals, to recognize this one's different from this one. And here's a name that fits this one. And here's a name that fits this one. Um, it, it seems like philosophers today have a tendency to lose that. Right, yeah. and the, the the new postmodern milieu sees everything as a gray soup uh, yeah. with no distinctions at all, yeah. and uh, yeah, that that spirit is really antithetical to Plato and ancient philosophy, who again sees our minds as able to grasp these really basic distinctions that are in the world prior <laughs> to us. We don't construct them. So, I know um, we're probably running low on time. Can I say something about his soteriology? This is one of the places that I. 
Yeah, um, I was I was just about to to, to ask you to, to to fill us in on something you might want to make sure we don't miss. So yeah, one of the main places I'm critical of him is at the end of the book talking about theology and salvation. And you know, the good part of his theology is he thinks that um, we can uh, come to be conformed to God's nature through becoming virtuous. He has because you have these immaterial realities that are uh, really glorious and, uh, and, and complete and good, we become good by conforming ourselves to them and growing in virtue. And he does imagine at the end us reaching a disembodied state, escaping the body finally. So very anti-Hebraic. We should criticize him for that. Totally agree with that part of it. Um, but he recognizes the value of the spiritual and the need for um, personal holiness and conformity to that divine pattern, to be uh, assimilated to that divine pattern. But what he doesn't have is divine assistance in yeah. achieving that holiness. Right. He doesn't have the incarnation. Yeah. He doesn't have God come for his people. Uh, it's up to us to find a way to climb to heaven. Hmm. And so at, at the end of the day, the, the lack of, of grace yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and, and the lack of a, a God-provided salvation is really apparent in Plato, you right. know. And so I think, you know, Platonists in history were probably pretty bad moralists where they just, mm-hmm. you know, said, do better, try harder. And if you had bad education, sorry, you know, right. no luck for you. Um, right. So I, I hope by the end of the book to kind of drive readers back to the gospel and um, hopefully, hopefully, be encouraging to them in that way. Yeah, yeah. I think you know when I when I try to uh, convey the value of say uh, Plato or Aristotle to people, you know, my my what I'm communicating to them is that there is a an integrity to the created order that we can apprehend, uh, but uh, it's also uh, you know. Uh, in bondage to decay, uh, and there's nothing you know that we can look to in the created order as it currently stands that would give us any hope, uh, and that's why uh, the gospel is about the new creation, uh, and it's an it's only known uh, through proclamation of an historic set of events. <laughs> in other words, we could reflect all day long on the top of a mountain on the forms and never arrive at the resurrection from the dead. <laughs> you know, right? So uh, the gospel cannot be supplanted by natural theology. Natural That's theology right. is good, takes you, you know, it's good for certain things, you know, yep. the moral law, things like that. But it's, it, it gives you no hope. <laughs> You know, yeah. and and so I I always wonder why is it that people are so uh, unnerved that Plato actually knew some things or Aristotle actually knew some things. I I don't think they really understand the nature of the gospel as the new creation, um, and that it, it's like you know the the old joke uh, in Down East Maine you can't get there from here. You know <laughs> you know like when somebody goes and asks some some guy with a you know. Uh, you know, some, some grass, uh, grass, a blade of grass in his mouth, you know, Hey, do you know how to get to Kenny Bunkport? And he says, well, well, you, well, no, it, it, you just can't get there from here. <laughs> that's, that's actually the case, you know? Yeah. So there's no way right. that Plato or Aristotle can give us knowledge that we really long for and need, but they yeah. can give us a lot of good information about things that are right here on the ground. Yeah. And he, I, Plato, too, identifies that aspiration. Yeah. That aspiration for eternity, for an unchanging good, mm-hmm. right, that I can be fully united to. Uh, he just doesn't, he doesn't know the whole story. Yeah. yeah. That's right, because he hasn't uh, heard the announcement that yeah. Christ has been raised from the dead. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. Anyway, so this has been a great conversation. We've gone over a little bit for our normal length of time. Is there anything you want to say, Glenn or Tom, as we wrap up? There's a lot Lots to say. Lots of ideas in here that are worth pursuing, but time time's limited. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a good excuse to have you back, David. <laughs> right. Okay, sounds good. That'll be yeah. a deal. 
Yeah, I'm going to be up there at the board meeting at New St. Andrews in a few weeks, so we got to get together and celebrate your book. I'll, yeah. buy, a, I'll buy a dinner. That, that'd be great. I would tell your listeners, too, if you want education like this, give us a look at New St. Andrews College. Definitely, definitely. All right. Well, great. Thanks. Thanks a lot, David. And thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast and getting all the way to the end of the show. Uh, if you like what you've heard and you'd like to support us in our work, you can do that by becoming a sponsor uh, through Patreon. And uh, there's a link in the show notes. We'll also, by the way, have a link to David's book, uh, wherever you'd like us to, to send people, David, to, to buy it. And uh, we'll also, uh, you know, uh, have some other things that uh, maybe will be helpful to you in terms of links and so forth. And uh, just so folks know, we are in the uh, we are in uh, the process right now of developing a fundraising campaign for our trip to the United Kingdom and Oxford. Uh, we're looking forward to doing that in the end, at the end of May. And if folks would like to be a part of helping make that happen, uh, that's going to be uh, possible uh, here in the very near future. Anyway, that's it for now. Thanks a lot and bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. To learn more about the church, you can visit trinityreformedkirk.com. Trinityreformedkirk.com.